When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey, everyone. I'm Megan Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome to the show that is all about uncovering the awesome in the everyday. Each week, my co-hosts and I give our favorite tips, share our best stories, and confide our true confessions as we invite you to join us in the pursuit of awesome. This is episode 92 of Sorta Awesome, and I'm joined today by everyone's favorite Hollywood housewife and the host of the podcast, Smartest Person in the Room, Laura Tremaine. I have to tell you all that I've been looking forward to this conversation with Laura for months now because I'm finally getting her to sit down and talk all about documentaries with me. Laura is someone whose taste I trust implicitly about most everything, including art and entertainment. So today, she and I are going to go through a list of documentaries that you might just want to check out right now. Whether you're a huge fan of this genre or you haven't ever watched a documentary, I think there's something for everyone on our list today. And we're going to get to all of that in just a minute. But first, Laura, let's go ahead and start this show the way we always do with Awesome of the Week. What do you have for us this week? Well, I brought this week a nonfiction book, which I kind of didn't think I wanted to do because documentaries are nonfiction works of entertainment. However, this book was so good and so important to read that I was like, I'm going to share it anyway. I don't care that it's similar to our show's theme. It's the book, um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. I cannot wait to hear about this. You know I love some nonfiction, and I have heard so many interesting things about this book. Megan, you have to pick it up immediately. I, when I was reading this book, the thought that just kept running through my mind is everybody who is on the internet should be reading this. <laughs> Fantastic. I love and it. Everybody I know is on the internet. And so I just was like, I wanted to like pass this out to everyone. It's so good. I don't want to ruin any of the stories for you. So I'm just going to sort of tell you what it generally is about. So when people are publicly shamed on the internet, which happens so much more than you even think. He obviously delves into some really big stories. A big one that kind of runs through a lot of the book is Justine Sacco. She was that PR executive from New York who made a yucky AIDS joke as she was flying to South Africa. And then like the whole internet was waiting for her to land to see that everyone has gone nuts. She'd gotten fired. Um, It was, she had a huge amount of fallout and it was just this sort of big internet thing. That's a thread that goes through a lot of this book. And he, and he takes other examples that you've 
maybe have heard of, and then some that were smaller or in a different country that maybe you wouldn't have heard of, but are along the same lines in that their transgression was either a bad joke or they said something they shouldn't have, but they didn't like actually do anything illegal or, you know, um, really deeply hurt someone other than being offensive. All the way to people who have done things, you know, very illegal or terrible. And so that you might think that they're, they should be shamed. Even, even the people who make the bad jokes, sometimes you would think, well, they should not have done that. So they deserve to get just like completely taken to task by millions upon millions of people. Right. When you read this book, though, you will really rethink your own participation in these mass shamings because you may be just one drop of water. Like, yeah, they shouldn't have said that. And it's no problem for you to tweet or put on Facebook or whatever, like, oh, that person was stupid for saying that. But it really snowballs. And it's not just about that one person doing something offensive. Like, it's kind of what it says about our whole society. And it goes back to like, you know, Scarlet Letter Days or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Like, have we really progressed culturally as much as we think we have? And I just was so struck by it because, of course, I've participated in, you know, mass public shamings on the internet and talked about how stupid someone was for doing something. And I have been shamed myself on the internet, you know, having a public platform, you know, when I was blogging or even just on social media, I've definitely misstepped and been called out for it on a tiny, tiny, tiny scale compared to the stories that he's sharing. But still, like I have walked in this culture on all sides of it and most people have. Right. Yes. And if they haven't, they're the type of person who's very fearful of it. Like a lot of times the people who are on social media, but they're just lurkers, they never, ever tweet anything or they never post anything from their profile, but they're on those social media platforms every day reading everyone else. A lot of times those people are fearful for their own, you know, misstep publicly. Now, I don't think a lot of us are fearful that we're going to say something wildly offensive, although... That is a fear. But like people are just even like the, you know, a tiny misstep that's even a personal one that would maybe affect their own community. People live in a lot of fear of that. Absolutely. Yes. And so he just talks about the layers of the users and the shamers and us as a culture. Like, I I don't even know that I can get into all the layers of this book. It made me think so much about how I use the Internet. And how I observe other people using the internet and my own judgments and what other people's judgments might be of me. It was just, I thought this book, is it's just like required reading. That I really feel that way. That's a really big endorsement coming from you. So it's called, you've been, so you've been publicly shamed. So you've by- been publicly shamed by John Ronson. It came out in 2015, but then it came out in paperback last year. And it is cheap. It's like $7 for the paperback. I got it on Amazon um, as a great cover. I think that you're going to want the actual copy instead of reading it on Kindle. I'm a big Kindle reader, but I I tend to like things that are really making me think, like really thoughtful things, things I might want to underline or whatever, which I underlined a lot in this book. I you know, dog-eared a lot of passages I wanted to return to. I was glad I had 
the actual book in hand. And I, I, I think everybody should read this or be having these kinds of conversations. I promise it will affect the way you use the internet. Fantastic. Okay. I cannot wait to dig into that. Sounds fascinating. Okay. Well, my awesome of the week this week is a um, sort of movement started by NPR this month. Maybe you've heard of it already. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you probably have heard of it. And that is the tripod challenge, hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D, that encourages people to spread their love of listening to podcasts to their friends. In fact, the tagline is, the idea behind it is to turn your friends into better listeners. So the statistics tell us that as of last year, one in five Americans have a podcast that they listen to at least once a month, one in five. So NPR kind of is collectively saying, let's see if we can boost that number a little bit. Let's see if we can get more people listening to podcasts. And what NPR knows that I know absolutely to be true is that people are more likely to listen to a podcast to even figure out what a podcast is and subscribe and become a regular listener if a friend tells them they've got to be listening to this. And I knew this from my own life, Laura, because even though I was familiar with podcasts and kind of knew how to listen to them for, for a couple of years, um, it wasn't until season one of Serial came out and you and I were together in our, in, in here in Oklahoma and you were telling, we were with friends and you were talking about this and you were like, you have to listen to this. That was what inspired me to like dig through my iPhone and figure out where the podcast app was and figure out how to subscribe and go back and listen to the whole season. So that was what really ignited for me. And once I had finished that, I was like, well, what else can I listen to? So that, that, that's the idea behind this tripod movement during the month of March. Tell one of your friends about a podcast that they should be listening to based on what their interests are. And so you maybe have heard lots of different podcast publishers this month telling you kind of what they think you might like to listen to. And so I have two recommendations. Lord knows, Laura, we do lots of podcast recommendations. That's sort of awesome already, don't we? I know, but I love hearing what other people are listening to and what's worth listening to. There's so many podcasts out now. I mean, like they're sprouting up on the daily. <laughs> on the daily. That I'm like, I can't, I don't know what to listen to anymore. I feel like paralysis. I need someone to tell me what to listen to. Yes. Well, lots of people are making those recommendations and then they're sharing what they're recommending to their friends on social media with that hashtag tripod. Um, so here's two that I wanted to talk a little bit about um, because I think they are a great listen alike for Sorta Awesome. The first one is, in fact, this is actually a question that we get so often in the Hangout group. People saying, oh my gosh, I'm such a fan of Sorta Awesome. I look forward to it every week. What are similar shows that I could be listening to that kind of are along the same lines as Sorta Awesome? So I have two that are similar in format that you all might want to check out if you're not already listening to them. The first one is The Simple Show, and it's hosted by my friend Tish Oxenreiter. Love Tish so much. She is so fantastic. She has been podcasting for years and years. In fact, her show back when it was the Simple Mom podcast was the first one I ever listened to. And she definitely got me started in this medium of podcasting. So 
Now she, her podcast has kind of evolved through the years, and now it's called The Simple Show. And recently she redid her whole format. It's very similar to Sorta Awesomes in that she has three regular co-hosts who come on and they each kind of have their thing that they talk about. And then she'll have a guest come on and talk about another specific topic. So her regular co-hosts are Stephanie Langford, Aaron Lochner, and Haley Stewart. And The Simple Show talks about books, travel, and life at home. And so each week when you tune in, you get to hear a familiar co-host voice similar to Sorta Awesome. And they're talking about the things that they are into right now. So Stephanie Langford comes on and talks about travel. Aaron Lochner comes on and talks about life at home. And then Haley Stewart comes in and to talk about books. So if those are things that you are into, you will absolutely love The Simple Show. And, and a great episode to start with, I think is episode 58. It's a fairly recent one. It's with Stephanie Langford. And in that one, Tish and Stephanie run down their world's best and most cities. So both Stephanie Langford and Tish have traveled the world, travel around the globe with their families, with their children. They both have done this separately. And so they put together this whole list, basically like a list of superlatives of all of these world cities, like the best of best cities for this, you know, best for kids. Um, they even talk about like the best for your budget or even like the dirtiest cities. And they talk about <laughs> cities that they have not been to yet, but they want to. So episode 58, the world's best, most cities is a great one to start with for the simple show. If you're not already listening to that. And then the other podcast is, again, a similarly formatted one to Sorta Awesome. So if you like this thing that we do here on Sorta Awesome, where we have three regular co-hosts and then we bring in guests every now and again, I think you'll want to check out Shalom in the City from Oshida Moore. Now, Oshida has been on Sorta Awesome talking about Shalom and the art of peacemaking. And so she's had a podcast that's been out for a little while now, and she's kind of revamped her approach to the podcast as well. Now she has three regular co-hosts, Abby Perry, Kara Meredith, and Jerusalem Greer, somebody who's familiar to the sort of awesome audience. And again, doing that same thing where they each kind of have a thing that they're going to come on and talk about. So you kind of get to know them as the weeks go on. So a great starter episode for that is the most recent one, episode 26, called Hopeful Resistance. And in that episode, she kind of intros the new team and then lays out, they together lay out some ideas for what peacemaking can look like in our culture right now. So that's a great one to start with, episode 26 of Shalom in the City. So again, those are two that are listen-alikes for Sort of Awesome that I am telling you, I think you should try if you haven't already. So we're supposed to, in in alignment with the movement, we're supposed to post on social media or something and use the hashtag. That's what NPR wants us to do. Yes. They want us to use that that hashtag tripod um, to tell other people like, okay, so my sports obsessed brother-in-law, I told him he has to try this podcast. Or my neighbor who's obsessed with true crime, I told her she has to try this one. And then you just use the, the hashtag tripod so that all of these recommendations get kind of spread throughout the listening universe. I love that. I am kind of surprised that NPR statistics say one in five Americans listen to podcasts because I feel like still, even though it's, it has gotten popular, when I mention podcasts to um, friends that they're often like, what now? Yes. Like, <laughs> exactly. Don't tell me again how this all works. 
So, yes, I run into that a lot, too. So one in five, though, is that's not a skimpy number. It's really not. It's really not. So, And that number has really skyrocketed. Really, everyone kind of looks at cereal season one as the time when the the nation kind of collectively sat up and was like, me, like, like, so how do I get this on my phone? And how does this all work? So NPR thinks that if we keep talking about our favorite podcast with our friends, that we're going to convert more and more people to listeners. And I think they are exactly right. So if you guys are sharing your podcast recommendations with friends, Use that hashtag and then tag us too, because I'd love to know what podcast you're recommending to your friends and family to get them hooked on podcasts right now. Okay. Like I said, at the top of the show today, we're talking all about documentaries. We have 10 documentaries that we think that you should check out right now. And Laura, one of the reasons I have been looking forward to this conversation with you is because for as long as I have known you, you have been into this art form and as much as I look forward to your book recommendations, what a lot of people might not know is that you have fantastic documentary recommendations too. A lot of our conversations start with you saying, so Jeff and I watched this documentary and kind of going from there. And I feel like I have become so much more engaged with the world of documentary filmmaking just because I've heard your enthusiasm for it. So I wanted to hear a little bit about how that all started for you and kind of the role it plays as entertainment for you and Jeff. We do love documentaries. We always have. And in some ways, they're like the original reality TV. That cheapens it. So I don't want that analogy to go too far. But, you know, before we were watching like regular people all the time, documentaries gave you a glimpse into a world. It wasn't totally like journalism. You know, it didn't right. have to be completely exactly non-biased or anything. But it was also like a glimpse into a world you may be didn't get to see otherwise, or a story you never would have heard otherwise, that type of thing. So it kind of bridged the gap for a long time before the reality TV explosion. But I, I do think that people are drawn to documentaries because they're real. Jeff and I used to have documentary night. This was long before children. <laughs> right. But we would have documentary night where we would invite friends over and we would watch docs and different people would suggest just them. And that was like really fun. People could get really into that. And then Jeff started making documentaries. Right. Yes. So that was big fun. He does that on the side. It's never been his kind of main thing, but he has done about one documentary a year for the last several, several years. He's done The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia, The Birth of Big Air. He's produced Being Evil, which is about Evil Knievel. Um, last year he did another documentary for ESPN called Angry Sky. So he makes documentaries, produces or directs, and that has been really fun to kind of watch that process go down. There's not a lot of money in documentary filmmaking. Most documentaries that you watch, people are in, have made it for love of the game. Sure. Absolutely. They, they really want to highlight that topic. They're really good at it, that type of thing. They feel like it's important. But yeah, it's not particularly lucrative, which is like sort of the joke about documentary filmmaking. My personal favorites that Jeff has made, he directed The Birth of Big Air, which is about Matt Hoffman, who is an Oklahoma yes, guy right. that we love, who basically invented a sport, you know, extreme BMX riding. Yes. 
And there's so many interesting things in that documentary. I could talk about it forever. It was in ESPN's original 30 for 30 series when they chose 30 filmmakers to make 30 documentaries. Um, Jeff was asked to be part of that original effort 2010 years ago. And we went to Oklahoma. We shot that thing. Matt Hoffman is a dear, dear, dear friend of our family. So it was great to highlight him and how he has contributed to um, what has essentially become the X Games. And like, there's really great things about that doc. Just an amazing sports story, really. So that's one of my favorites, That things that Jeff has ever done. Another one of my favorites is called The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. It's on Netflix. It follows the white family, and they are a large and extended family. It's sort of a sequel to another documentary that came out, I think in the 70s or 80s called The Dancing Outlaw, and it's about Jessica White, who was like a clogger. He was like a, a dancer, and he was a really big personality. Okay. And that documentary, The Dancing Outlaw, was kind of one of the things that had we had viral content at the time, it would have gone absolutely viral. People got obsessed with The Dancing Outlaw documentary. It got passed around. It was very, very, very popular in the type of circles that watch this type of thing. Back then, The Wild and Wonderful Whites is sort of a follow-up to that. So this is Jesco's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they are just a zany family. Okay, yes. They are huge personalities, but they um, there's a lot of darkness, actually, in this documentary. So it's kind of funny in the beginning, like, look at this crazy family. And then you really kind of see uh, really – desperate and difficult part of the country that is historically in poverty and just in their community and their family, whatever. It, that that doc actually goes really dark, but it is wonderful. And I, I really think people should watch that one. So that's our history with documentary. Jeff has another doc coming out this spring for Hulu. Hulu made it and it's going to premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. It is called Dumb, the History of Big Brother Skateboarding magazine. So we just, we stay in the documentary game and it's, it's really um, something we're both interested in. That is fantastic. One thing I love about documentaries, I truly think that it is an art form where the talent of the director shines through so big because, you know, when you're watching scripted film or scripted TV or whatever, sometimes it's really easy to get distracted by the talent of the acting that you're seeing going on or even set design or, or music direction or whatever. I feel like with documentary, it's so obvious, the director's point of view and how they put it together and how it creates this art that I love it. In fact, I really took note of, of each of these that are on my list of who the directors are because how they bring their vision together in like an hour and a half to two hours of film is really impressive when you kind of pull back and think about it. So, Also, I just want to say this because I thought of it. I interviewed a documentary producer on Smartest Person in the Room That's right. in the Hollywood series, Katie Doring. And we had a really interesting conversation about documentaries. She now works for Sundance Institute. And we and I said something about documentaries being the real truth or something. I can't remember what I said. But anyway, her response was like, no, no, no. Right. This is not journalism. Not. Don't get confused. Yes. There is a bias in documentaries always. And I was so glad she said that. Some of those are some of them are more obvious than others. Like yes. you can clearly see what the angle is here. Yes. But sometimes they are presented in a way where you just think like this is it. This is the whole truth. Yeah. 
Um, and that's just just not the case. I remember when Making Murder came out just over a year ago on Netflix, there was a lot of like side discussion, like, well, the filmmakers obviously have a bias towards this or whatever. And it's like, yes, they clearly do. That's how documentaries work. And so absolutely. And, and some of these that we're going to talk about, you can see a little, like you said, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's obvious, but the director has a point of view in telling the story. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm going to start our list off. We have 10 to talk about, 10 that we're going to talk about on this full episode of Sort of Awesome. For those of you who are Sort of Awesome patrons through Patreon, you're going to get a little bonus content with us talking about our ones that are documentaries that didn't make this list of 10. So keep an eye on your podcast app for that. But I'm going to start us off with the first one. And it addresses an issue that really affects most all women in our country. The name of the documentary is The Mama Sherpas. And it looks at the midwifery model of care, particularly as it pertains to pregnancy and birth. So it's a 2015 documentary. It's directed by Bridget Marr. The executive producers are Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein, who you may know some of their previous work about women and healthcare and pregnancy and birth because they made the documentary Business of Being Born. So this is a little bit of a follow-up to Business of Being Born and that the Business of Being Born really identified a lot of the issues that plague women's healthcare, particularly about pregnancy and birth. This, the Mama Sherpas takes a, a step further because Bridget Marr, the, the maker of this documentary, wanted to identify solutions. And when she was able to have a VBAC birth, a vaginal birth after C-section, because of the care she received in support she received from midwives, she was really inspired to tell her personal story. And so, and she was really interested to find out that, you know, a lot of times I think there's this uh, perception of midwives that they're the ones who are, you know, doing all the home births and then they have birthing centers. But the truth is that 95% of midwifery care happens within the hospital system. So it's this collaboration between midwives, medical doctors, the traditional medical model of care with the midwife model of care. And what I really love about the Mama Sherpas, I have to tell you, I was a little hesitant going into this one because I'm a three-time cesarean birth mom. I've, those are the only birth experiences I've had. So sometimes these documentaries and, and exposés on birth can be a little grating if that's been your only birthing experience. So I was a little bit hesitant, but I really like that they take the time and, and the care with each woman's story that they feature to show midwifery care in a variety of contexts, and they treat the women with so much dignity and respect. Um, and so that it's not, there's no like, there are, of course, a couple of women who share their frustrations with having had cesarean births and wanting something different. But it's not a lot of just like shame, shame, shame for any C-section mom. It is really about, hey, here's a different model of care that you may not know is a possibility. And it shows it in all of these different contexts from everyone from like a first time mom to someone who's having her third child. There's definitely a, a little bit of a focus on the VBAC births. There's even a breech birth. So they show all of these different contexts and all these different possibilities and how midwives can really be that bridge between what we would consider, you know, like a traditional hospital birth and the midwife model, which doesn't treat pregnancy and birth as a medical condition. It really looks at it holistically and encourages women to 
you know, sort of like lean into what their bodies were created to do when it comes to birth. So anyway, if you're into thinking about women's health care, women's issues, particularly around the childbirth experience, I highly recommend the Mama Sherpas. It's available on Amazon. You can also rent it through YouTube. So that was the first one on my list. Well, we are going to take a turn for mine. Okay. <laughs> my first one is called Celebrity. Like celebrity, but with an S, like celebrity. Um, It came out in 2012. I rented it on Amazon. It's kind of about the history of the paparazzi going all the way back to Charlie Chaplin, who used to be attacked by mobs of fans, to Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, whose love affair is kind of credited with like a turn in our culture's relationship to celebrities and their love lives. Because the movie star's image used to be really carefully controlled by the studios. And then it kind of shifted a lot with um, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor to fans being obsessed with wanting pictures and intel on like what the secret scoop is. You know? Right. Yes. Celebrities directed by Kevin Mazur. Mazur. I don't know how you say. Who is a photographer himself not a paparazzi photographer, a celebrity photographer. And so because of his connections in Hollywood, there's a lot of really thoughtful interviews in this doc with people like Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Lopez, people who have really been affected by paparazzi. I was especially interested in this documentary because, of course, I live in Los Angeles. Right. I have seen firsthand the paparazzi in action You know, I used to just see them outside of trendy restaurants and that type of thing, which is like kind of a normal place for them to be. They're trying to catch a a shot of a celebrity. But I've also seen them on the street. I have seen them chase a friend up my driveway onto our private property. Um, I I just, I've seen it in my life. Not It has not affected my family (laughs) at all, but I have seen it. And it is so crazy that I was really interested in this doc that another friend told me to watch. Celebrity is talking about why the paparazzi do these crazy things that they do. They will climb fences. They will send drones over your property. They will chase celebs down in their cars. Of course, Princess Diana was famously being chased by photographers when she passed away. And it is because the photographs that these photographers are getting are fetching a lot of money. Money. So much money. Money. So places like TMZ, uh, you know, Us Weekly, all the tabloids are paying big money for these photographs. And so, especially if you can get one that's unusual. And so these photographers are chasing down these celebrities. They're provoking them. It showed in the doc, like, They will say things to you that are really crazy, like about your ex-spouse or about your career being down in the dumps. They show footage of Justin Timberlake coming outside of a restaurant. Um, He has his bike helmet in his hand, and uh, the paparazzi is sitting on his motorcycle. Oh, my god! Like, just trying to make him mad. Because if he gets mad and they get a good shot, they'll get a lot of money for that. Mm, So they're very provoking. And it also sort of, you know, this is a little bit like the My Awesome of the Week, the public shaming book. It makes you think what your role is in 
in this cycle because the magazines and the tabloids are able to pay for these photos because so many people pay for the magazine or to go to the site or whatever. I actually gave up tabloid stuff uh, years ago. And you know, the funniest thing that made me do it was the Britney Spears documentary in 2008 called For the Record. Do you remember this one? Yes. Yeah. This was, you know, obviously Britney Spears had a very public breakdown. Yes. When you watch the footage of her life in For the Record, you will be like, of course she did. Yeah. She could not walk. Paparazzi was like shaking her car. She couldn't do anything. She was like a caged animal. Yeah. And that was one of the first times at that point I had been like a us weekly subscriber and I read all the, you know, PerezHilton.com and like all the different things. And then I, it almost stopped me cold turkey. I believe it. It's very disturbing when you look at it on a human level. It is so disturbing. Now, I'm not saying that I won't like pick one up if I'm in a doctor's office and it's like on the copy table. I mean, if it's just there, if it's just, what are you supposed to do? Presented to me. But I will say um, with conviction that I do not purchase those magazines anymore and I don't go to – there are certain websites, TMZ included, that I will not give them a click if I can at any time help it. And if you try to see these from a human level versus like your own curiosity about someone's sex life, it is it's, – it's really shameful. This came out in 2012, so the world has changed even in the last few years since this. But they touch on it briefly, and I think that this has gotten even more so. Um, Jennifer Aniston, I think, is the one who says it. And she is saying that the Kardashians have changed it a little bit, and Paris Hilton changed it a little bit because they so badly wanted to be photographed. And, and now they're the ones that actually – their pictures sell so well. And so this, there has been a shift. She doesn't say it all the way, but I can say this from observing, that um, the paparazzi are now going after reality people a lot more than they are going after um, the actors. That's interesting. Which I think is interesting because maybe in a way that's good. Maybe that's a shift towards people who have signed up for it in a way. Sure. And and I'm not saying that anybody deserves to be like stalked and invaded and all that. That's not what I mean. But just as far as the attention of it. Because if you think like, and I, you know, I don't see a lot of these magazines enough to make this a full judgment call, but it seems like from the outside that I you do see a lot less pictures of like, I don't know, Reese Witherspoon, um, you know, like actor people. Right. Like those pictures probably do not command as much money right. as if they got a picture of a Kardashian. That would that's like a huge thing. You know, so that's maybe there maybe that has been a good shift since this documentary came out, but it's really, really good. I think people should watch it. Good. And it was called Celebrity. Celebrity. It's called Celebrity with an S, like Celebrity. Um, I rented it on Amazon. Excellent. Well, my next one happens to be in that same thread of once you watch it and engage with the material, you kind of have to decide uh, what's my role in this whole bigger thing. It's called The True Cost. It's a 2015 documentary from Andrew Morgan. It's mm. similar, and I think you've seen it too, right, Laura? The true cost. I have seen it. Yeah. It's similar to 
the 2008 film Food Inc., which examined issues with like the, the corporate food production industry, except the true cost, instead of looking at food, looks at the current fast fashion trends in the fashion industry. So if you are, you're probably familiar with the idea of fast fashion. It's, it's clothing that is made and, and sold in stores like H&M and Zara and um, even to some extent the Gap. It's basically clothing that is super cheap for the consumer. And it's meant to be worn for just a season or two and then probably tossed or donated. You know, just it's not meant to be something that you have in your closet for years. And so what the true cost does, what Andrew Morgan does in this film is he examines all of these issues and the global impact that fast fashion is having on both our actual physical planet and the people in these different supply chains along the way that are making fast fashion a possibility. So he looks at everything from like cotton fields and like goes out to an organic cotton field in Texas where they talk about the difference between growing cotton organically as opposed to how most cotton is is grown for these, again, for these big clothing conglomerates that are just churning out clothing. Um, he looks especially in the, in the part that was the most powerful for me, I think probably for most people who watch The True Cost, is he looks at the living and working conditions for these garment workers in countries outside of the United States, like Bangladesh and um, in India and China, to some extent. And, and he looks at how their actual human lives are impacted by the purchasing choices that we're making here in the United States, because we want to be able to run down to the gap and pick up, um, you know, a new button up for $15. And so... I found it to be very powerful and very convicting. And and one of the most poignant stories to me was he interviews this woman in Bangladesh um, who, you know, sometimes has to bring her um, daughter who's like six or seven along to the factory with her. And it just like looks at their, their whole lives. And it was really one of those moments where I was thinking like here, you know, I am one of those kumbaya people who believes firmly that we belong to each other and that we are meant to take care of the humans that we're on this planet with at the same time. And here are these women, the vast majority, like over 85% of garment workers are women. Here are these women on the other side of the world. And true, they did choose to have these jobs and no one has, it's not forced labor by any means. Um, they've chosen these jobs from amongst a variety of not great job options, but they've chosen these jobs. But at the same time, the conditions that they are in and, and that what they have to, that their lives become just to churn out this fashion for us, it's very powerful. And you definitely walk away thinking, um, what's my role in this? And one thing that he does that I think is very hopeful is he spotlights companies who are doing things in very ethical ways, who are trying to make a difference in those countries and are trying to make a difference in the fashion industry overall. And it's, you know, like a small grassroots grassroots movement, but there are people who are trying to do it the right way. And so it's available on Netflix, very powerful watch, The True Cost, if you are into those kinds of like examine the issue and the global impact type stories. Yeah, that's a, that was a good one for me too. I am totally guilty at shopping at H&M or in the past, Forever 21. And I could never put my finger on why it made me feel icky. Right. But if you can buy a shirt for $5, there's something wrong with that. Absolutely, yes. 
Yeah. And, you know, some, obviously some part of you knows that when, when you pick it up. And I, I, I agree that that was a good, um, documentary to kind of show. There's lots of layers to that one. I feel like we're going to say, I'm going to say the word layers <laughs> throughout this episode. Yeah, documentaries are good with layers. Definitely. They're nuanced, you know, they, they help you look at all the different things that are going on there. So yeah, right, that's a next, good one. What's next on your list? My next one is a little heavier than my first one, but I feel pretty passionate about this topic. It's called the hunting ground. Mm. Have you seen that one? I have not. Uh-uh. CNN made it um, in 2015, and they aired it on CNN, so a lot of people watched it. So I heard a big buzz about it at the time, and I was also reading that same fall John Krakauer's book, Missoula. All right. Okay. And they deal with the same topic, which is um, campus rape. Mm-hmm. And on colleges and universities – probably private schools, like in this young person culture, there is a pretty terrible epidemic of acquaintance rape Mm. or date rape. Mm -hmm. It is not usually, although sometimes, but it's not usually like stranger rape, like jump out of the bushes. Yes, right. Stranger. It is usually um, alcohol-fueled at a party, maybe you're on a date, maybe you know each other through friends, whatever. And um, Krakauer's book is quite a bit more nuanced than the, than the documentary is, b- but that's for a reason. If, if you are interested in this topic or if you watch the doc and then want a companion, I really suggest people go read Krakauer's book, Missoula, because it um, maybe shows a, a more whole picture, I guess, because it's a book and it can go into details and it can go into the culture problems and some other things. But The Hunting Ground is, I think people should watch it if they have children Mm. that are going to be growing up in this culture. Um, I have nieces who are of college age and I was like immediately like, oh, we have to talk. We have to talk about what's happening on campuses. I thought that CNN did a wonderful job. This documentary is very well made and it gives statistics. It's following several personal stories of girls who were raped. Um, Their scenarios are different. Like they, maybe they were at a frat party, um, Maybe there was one where there, you know, it it was kind of more of a stranger situation, but all on campus. And the big part of this is not just about sexual culture and rape, but about how the universities have kind of universally denied that it's happening. Oh, wow. So a big part of the hunting ground is that they – they cover it up or they do not take any action. So so one of the big impacts to me of the documentary is it goes through and it shows like, I don't want to mess up these stats, but it will say university of whatever, 239 sexual assaults reported, zero suspensions or expulsions. Wow. So they have taken no action 
and they it just went through school after school of how many assaults were reported and ha- how often that resulted in some kind of punishment. Mm-hmm. And it is it is often like zero, mm-hmm. literally zero. Um, they touch a little bit on this is more prominent in the Missoula book than it is in the Hunting Ground about how often this is campus athletes mm-hmm. that are being protected because. They are bringing revenue into the school. They are sports stars or potential sports stars, and they get treated with white gloves, and maybe the girls are lying or the girls were drunk, so they don't know, or you know, whatever. There's a little bit of that in this, but there's also a big healthy dose of, it's not that. It's just they're not believed or they're not believed that it's a big thing. Some of the girls um, that are being interviewed a lot of them say this actually, like report what was said to them. And like the counselors who are often also women are saying things to them like, what could you have done differently on this evening? Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. But I really think that it is important because when I started reading about some of these things, I started having, you know, I, especially when I read that book a few years ago, I was like talking to everybody about it. And I was really surprised that people do not feel black and white about acquaintance rape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it can devolve into this question of what is rape. And when I, I think that you watch these stories and you hear what happened, if you imagine that that's your own loved one, It does not seem as gray. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is the power of documentary, right? Absolutely. Hear stories. And this one, I just really think that this is a topic worth exploring. I think people should watch this one. I I know you people might not agree with every single solitary point they made, but it is very well done and it is very eye opening. No matter what. It's so good. The Hunting Ground. I watched it on Netflix, made by CNN. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, my next one is, it's a deep dive into something that turned out to be pretty disturbing, and I was not prepared for that. Okay. It's also one that my sister highly recommended to me. My sister also, my sister Emily, she's been on Sorta Awesome before. She has, she watches a lot of documentaries. She always has a good recommendation. And she was like, you have to watch this documentary called Tickled came out in 2016 and was made by David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve. David Ferrier is a New Zealand journalist who literally just stumbled upon this story about competitive tickling teams. I'm so uncomfortable. I can't talk about it anymore. I'm so nervous. I felt wildly uncomfortable watching it, but my sister assured me it was worth watching. And it, it is. If you don't mind a disturbing deep dive, Tickled is a fascinating story because on the surface, it's this examination of competitive tickling. And it's as disturbing as, you, as you're as you imagining right now because what happens are these young athletic men are recruited to be on these competitive tickling teams. Wait, what do you mean? Compa- who is giving the awards? I don't know. No, no <laughs> it's not. There's no awards, really. It's actually cool. There's actually no awards other than money. They're getting paid to do this. They're essentially being strapped down to beds and tables and being tickled. No. Nope. Being tickled by these other young men. And it's Is this a fetish? It's a fetish. Okay. So it's all being videoed Mm -mm. and then distributed for people who are 
involved in and, and intrigued by a tickling fetish. So one thread of this documentary is examining the fetish part. But the even more fascinating story is that there are two main production companies who in the past, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, have created these videos who have done all of the work of recruiting the young men, filming them, distributing them. And what actually happens to these men after the they've recorded these videos, which they just think are like some weirdo going to tape them for, you know, a few minutes of being tickled. And they got paid a couple of thousand dollars. Then it gets released on YouTube. And um, basically, the production companies kind of hold them hostage by threatening to release all of this information about them and, and false information about them, the, the participants themselves, that they're perverts or that they're um, sexual predators, all of these different things, release them to their, their schools and to their employers. And it's really, really upsetting to see how these production companies completely exploit these people. In fact, one of the main issues that kind of comes out of it is a tale as old as time, which is power and control between the classes, rich people, people with money and resources, exploiting these kids who don't have monetary resources and how it all unfolds. So Tickled, it's an HBO documentary. You can, I watched it on Amazon um, through Amazon channels where you can subscribe to uh, HBO, Showtime, whatever. Um, I know for sure you can get it there. There's probably a couple of other places on the internet you can find it. 2016 film, Tickled. Man. <laughs> it's so weird. If you watch it, pull me aside. Let's talk about it. Okay. I feel weird taking a pivot to murder, but we're going to. Let's do it. So my favorite genre within documentary is true crime. Of course it is. Of course it is. And so I could do, we could do a whole show on just true crime documentaries. There's so many. So many. There's so many. My favorite one of all time, this is not my pick. This is not my count. I just want to say. Okay. My favorite one of all time is The Staircase. Right. It's like nine episodes. It is the best thing you'll ever watch. It is so good. And I'm compelled to talk about it with everyone who says that they've seen it. I'm like, we have to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone go watch that. But that's not my pick. <laughs> um, in fact, I think we did. I did talk about some of my favorite true crime documentaries. Yeah, you have. When we on, talked about true crime. Yeah. When we on our true crime episode, which we'll link to in the show notes because it's um, – and if you're into true crime, then go listen to that episode because I talk about my favorite books and docs. But the one I want to talk about today that's on my actual list, we did not talk about back then. It was made in 2015. It's on Netflix. It's called The Witness. Okay. Um, it's about – there was a murder in 1964 of a woman named Kitty Genovese in New York City. And – it became really famous because she was kind of in the courtyard or on a side street of her large apartment building, and she screamed a lot, and it was reported that multiple neighbors looked out, saw her being stabbed, and did nothing about it. Oh, wow. And she survived the initial stabbing. This is not giving anything away about the documentary. She survived the initial stabbing and she kind of crawls around a corner to a neighbor's entryway and and kind of thinks that she's safe there. Some neighbors like kind of look at her, don't help her. She's bleeding everywhere. And then the man comes back. Oh, wow. And um, 
and proceeds to kill her. So it's a terrible death. She was young and lived with a roommate in New York City. She was trying to make her way. And the New York Times then reported that all of these neighbors had witnessed it and done nothing. Mm. And so it has been held up for decades as kind of like the state of society these days. We don't even help one another. We don't call 911. We don't run out and chase the guy away. We don't, you know, we save ourselves or we, even worse, are totally apathetic to other people's suffering to this woman like bleeding in New York City. And and it really pointed to New York City in particular as being this like callous, terrible place to be. So this documentary that is called The Witness is about that incident, but her brother is the star. He is an older man now. He is in a wheelchair. And for, for some different reasons that have come to light, he has realized and goes to interview people who were there that night that that is not what actually happened. Oh, wow. People did call the police. One man shout. The reason that he ran away the first time, that the killer ran away the first time, was that somebody did shout out the window like, hey, go away, you know, get out of here type of thing. Um, a different neighbor called another neighbor that was friends with Kitty, the victim, and and the friend who was called runs down in her robe and, and sits with her. And actually, when Kitty passes away, she's in the arms of her friend. Mm. So this story that had been used as an example for a long time about how terrible we all are is actually not true. That is fascinating. It is so interesting. And that that's the premise of the whole thing. So I'm not giving anything away. It's not like he uncovers that it's not true. He sort of says at the beginning, like, this isn't, this isn't true. And I'm going to show you why kind of, he doesn't say it like that, but you know, so he interviews people and then he goes and interviews even some reporters at the time who were reporting on it. The story spread like wildfire. It went into newspapers across the country. This was in the sixties. So we were not on a 24 hour news cycle at the time, but a lot of newspapers picked it up. A lot of people were sort of invested in this thing. And um, so he talked to a lot of reporters who were reporting at the time. And so they were, they're talking about journalism culture at the time and what sells papers or, um, what maybe an editor would want the attitude to be, like the kind of reaction that you're, you're trying to get. Why I picked it for my list. It's not, it's, it's a great documentary. It's totally worth your hour and a half especially if you like true crime. There's no whodunit. You know you know who does it. She, he goes to jail. All of, There's no whodunit to element to this. But why I wanted to talk about it is because what we're seeing in our current culture every single day is the whole fake news. Yes. Yes. And how the internet, I'm being told daily that the, the big bad internet has made fake news this terrible thing mm-hmm. and has affected our election and and people are stupid for sharing it or believing it or blah, blah, blah. there's all these talks. Fake news is on my TV every single day. I don't deny that fake news is a problem. It is, but it also has always been. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the big bad internet. It's not the big bad internet that has made fake news. Right. And I was watching this documentary called The Witness and I was like, this happens now. Mm-hmm. We believe the first narrative that comes out 
And then that's just what we believe about it. Mm, right. You never like, if there is a follow-up or a retraction or a correction, you never actually, you may never hear like, oh, and by the way, it wasn't true what we said about 38 witnesses who saw it and did nothing. Nobody ever heard that part. Right. And that happens now. It really is a point worth making. And this, and this is an interesting story to make it with. Another interesting one along these same lines, this is very, very, very tragic, one of America's great tragedies. But if you read the book Columbine by Dave Cullen, he is also making a similar point in how badly the news got that story, it's got the details of that story wrong mm. and how it really changed um, the way we perceived school shootings and school shooters and um, tragedy. And, and, and that is so tragic. But we all believed that this one thing happened at that high school. And when you read Columbine, you're like, wow, I, I did not know this other thing. And so um, on a, a much smaller scale, of course, the witness is saying that. And I just could not, I could not keep, I could not stop thinking about how relevant it was to everybody being up in arms about fake news. Like that's this new crazy thing that, that changed our election. Yeah. When that it's not. It is a thing that has been around for forever, and it's just harder to contain because it's not newspaper editors any longer being those gatekeepers. Anybody can sprout up a fake news site. Exactly. Yes. But the actual thing that has been put into the world, that thing has been happening for decades. As long as there has been print, there has probably been things falsely reported that everybody believes and then takes as gospel truth. Right. That is so fascinating. So- the Witness, you can watch it on... Netflix. Netflix, Netflix. Okay, good deal. Okay, the next one on my list is kind of a, a little bit has that thread of we don't really know the whole story. I love documentaries that are the story behind the story. So this was part of the 30 for 30 series on ESPN. It's called The Price of Gold. It was made in 2014 by Nanette Burstein. And it is the story behind the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan scandal leading up to the 1994 Winter Olympics. Now, Laura, you and I could sit here and, and not even have to go over what that was about because of our age. But if you're under the age of 30, you may need a quick refresher on the details. And that is that six weeks before the 1994 Olympics, um, U.S. figure skater Nancy Kerrigan was coming off the ice at the U.S. figure skating uh championship. And she was attacked by a man who hit her in the knee with a police baton and then ran off. And the the drama kind of unfolded from there uh, as Nancy was able to rehab and then go on and skate in the Olympics. And it was, you know, it was a whole thing, right? And so what The Price of Gold does is traces the story of Tanya Harding's life and her upbringing um, how she was the daughter of an alcoholic mother who was very harsh and abusive. Um, she, in order to get away from her mother, married very early to uh, a man who turned out to be abusive as well. Um, it really shows her in a more sympathetic light than many of us who, you know, experienced the news cycle in 1994 as all of this was happening in real time. This portrays her in a much more sympathetic light you really understand her determination. You you get a, a new insight into how d 
deeply talented she was as a figure skater, but also these class issues that were at play because she was from the wrong side of the tracks. She had this frizzy blonde hair. Oh my Lord, Laura, the, the scrunchies and the gold barrettes in her hair and all of these different performances. Oh, they just make me cringe because I'm like, I very, very specifically remember those. Um, but she was kind of frizzy hair, kind of crass did not fit the usual like ice princess figure skating mold and how all of these things go, you know, they all play into these events and then really examining, did she or did she not have any involvement in what turned out later her, her husband and some friends of his confessed to um, orchestrating this whole thing. And they did it in a really stupid, sloppy way. Um, But it really looks at, did she know that this was being planned or Is it something that just happened around her and kind of what her life has been like since then? You can find it on Amazon for cheap, 30 for 30, the price of gold, especially if you remember that whole thing unfolding. I think you'll find it to be a fascinating watch. It was really interesting because, you know, the narrative back then was that the media narrative back then was that Nancy Kerrigan was this perfect angel and that Tanya Harding was this evil. I mean, they they definitely played like yes. devil angel thing. That Absolutely. was the story. Absolutely. And when you watch this, you're like, that was not exactly right. true. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a good one. Okay. What's next on your list? That is a good one. Okay. The, my next one is, is going to be a surprise to all, including myself. It is Planet Earth 2. Oh, yeah. I've heard so many great things about this. Listen, I am not an animal person. <laughs> I'm not, despite new, the fact that I have a new dog puppy now. notwithstanding, yes. <laughs> but my husband and my daughter are such massive animal people, like huge animal lovers. When I am this since we were dating, even before we were dating, we were just friends. If we visit a city, any city, we've been there before, we've never been there, Jeff forces me to go, go to either the zoo or the aquarium. We must see animals. Sure, sure. On all travels. So I have more animals in my life than you really I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that planet Earth is the most amazing thing I've maybe ever seen on my television. So you do not have to have an animal appreciation or, you know, be into nature or or anything to watch this with your mouth dropped open. It is amazing. BBC makes it. It takes years and years and dozens of filmmakers or like cameramen to capture the kind of things that they are capturing all over the world. These animal, there's mating rituals, there's attacks, there's... Um, so much beauty. It's just absolutely mind blowing. And I don't say that lightly, like, because I don't even like this kind of thing. Right. And it's also good for the family, even though some of it, you know, there's like animal fights and things that like, I'm always like, do we need to, do we need this little bloody for me? But the kids always ask really interesting questions. And because they're children, they retain a lot of what they're learning here. And it's really it's a good family one. And family-friendly documentaries are rare. Definitely, yes. So I I cannot say enough about the Planet Earth series. The original Planet Earth came out in 2006, and it was like 10 years in the making. And it was the first type of thing that was shot in HD using HD cameras. Oh, that's right, yeah. 
And I remember we got, not primarily for this, but one of the reasons that we got an HD TV was to watch Planet Earth and it's like full glory. And it was absolutely glorious. It came through. It was amazing. Planet Earth 2, we're all used to HD. We're used to things being shot really well. Even so, it is breathtaking. Like truly, I took a picture and put it on Instagram. My family sits there with our mouths open like, what is on the TV? It's amazing. It's it's yeah. airing right now on um, BBC America. If you get that, it's in a lot of cable packages. Otherwise, you can purchase it on um, Amazon or wh- wherever you buy DVDs. You can purchase and watch the whole thing. But it's really beautiful. Planet Earth 1 or Planet Earth 2. Gotcha. Good, good stuff. Okay. The last one on my list is one that will be a surprise to no one because it deals with an issue so close to my heart. It is a documentary called Salam Neighbor. And it is was made in 2016 by Chris Temple and Zach Ingrassi. Those names might sound familiar to you if you've seen the Living on One Dollar Project. They're the two young, they're like two white dudes who go around the world and show what it's like to live on one dollar in various places around the world. One dollar a day. Um, so they were so intrigued by, fascinated by, heartbroken by, the Syrian refugee crisis, that the two of them persuaded the UN High Council on Refugees to let them register as refugees and live in the Zadari refugee camp in Jordan. So the Zadari refugee camp is seven miles over the border from Syria in Jordan. It's home to about, well, over 85,000 Syrians now. It's the second largest refugee camp in the world. And so they persuaded the UN to let them have this whole experience and what they wanted to do was like showcase what is going on in these refugee camps, um, particularly this one in Jordan. And uh, my friend, Janet Chapman Gates, who uh, took part in my Lebanon series after I got back from Lebanon, told me about this film. She was like, you absolutely have to watch it. And it took me a while. I needed a little space before I could watch it. When I finally did, I was surprised at how hopeful it is. I thought I was going to be sobbing through the whole thing. It's not, it's, it's powerful and moving, but not in that way, because what it does is showcases how these thousands and thousands of people who all of them have a story of deep, painful trauma. All of them have been through these traumatizing events, both when they were there in Syria and as they were fleeing the country and Every single one of those 85,000 people has a story that would absolutely shatter your heart. But what you see is how they are resilient and how they are trying to rebuild something of a normal life. And so you see women starting their own like little handcraft businesses. Like there's one one woman who makes um, hair accessories for women that will go under their hijab. Uh, there's another woman who just makes art. She collects plastic bags that are just like blowing through the camp. She collects them and turns them like weaves them into art and sells them. Um, you see children and what they're experiencing. They really do focus a lot on the plight of women and children because women and children in refugee situations are extremely vulnerable. But instead of just painting this picture of pity, you see how amazingly resilient their spirit is. And so it's just really fantastic. Salam neighbor. Um, there's definitely parts that are very sad and heartbreaking, but for the most part, if you want to see people who have just this incredible spirit and this tenacity to carry on with their life, even though they've been forced to flee from their home, 
I just, I can't say enough good things mm. about it. It's fantastic. And it's on Netflix. So easy to watch. What's it called? Salam Neighbor. Salam like peace yes, or hello yes. in mm. Arabic. So yeah, it's good, good stuff. Okay. My last one is very fluffy, but I was pretty inspired by it. It's called Iris. It's came out in 2014. It's on Netflix. It is about um, the New York City fashion world fixture, Iris Apfel. If you know her, she's 93. Um, and she, I think you would know her if you saw her because she's kind of become very uh, iconic. She was iconic before, but she's now on a, on a national level of consciousness, I think, because she's been in some really large ad campaigns. And um, you might have seen her on Instagram or something like that because she is – uh, very old, and she's probably the most stylish person I've ever seen in my entire life. That's amazing. That's amazing. She has been collecting accessories and clothes for decades upon decades now, you know, probably 70 years. She used to be an interior decorator, very high end. You know, she's worked like in the White House and in the Senate and in, um, you know, like governor's mansions and like very big projects when she was a younger person. And she would travel all over the world to get her textiles and stuff. And when she would do so, she would purchase a lot of accessories. So she wears like 10 necklaces at once and somehow it looks amazing. So this doc is is directed by Albert Maysells. He directed with his brother, um, Grey Gardens, which is also a very famous documentary about um, older women. That's very, very famous and sort of has like a cult following, actually. So yes, he directed does. Iris. It's short. It's, you know, an hour 19, and it sort of follows her around the city. There's no like big plot point to it. But what I liked about it is watching this older woman with such style, and she um, – the way that she picks her things, the way that she shops, if you will, is she's like, I don't just like go to the luxury stores and just like buy things. She sort of hunts them all out. So she goes to like oh, wow. thrift stores and again, in her travels over the years, and she will pick up something from, you know, a handmade little flea market type of find. And then she'll pair it with like some you know, hand-painted Givenchy coat type of thing. I mean, like, she really mixes high and low before that was a cool thing to do. And yeah. you see the way she puts it all together, and she puts a lot of it together. She's very heavily accessorized. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, that looks amazing. And she says, um, you know, someone told her many, many years ago, like when she was a young person, like, you – are not pretty, you will never be pretty, mm. but you have something more important and that is style. And she said it, it was not offensive to her. She knew that she was not traditionally pretty in the way that people say so, which I would argue with that. I think she actually is very lovely looking, but I could see her point if she was like, it's just something, style is just something different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was really inspired by it. I also like a dramatic look and, um, that's not always appreciated <laughs> by people. So to see her like really rocking it in New York when this isn't true so much anymore, of course, but like when New York used to be just the land of like everybody wore black turtlenecks and, and yes. whatever. So to see her like just like being her true self in a, a style way, I just, I just loved it. She also, 
you know, was married for many, many, many years. Her husband's older than her and um, a lot of their marriage is kind of on display. It's just, it's great. It's short. It's inspirational, especially if you're a woman. Like, it just makes you want to be like, oh, like, I wouldn't put on some lipstick right now and some big old glasses. And so <laughs> I just fun. loved it. I thought it was fun. Iris, it's on Netflix. It's great. Fantastic. Well, that was our list of 10. Like I said, if you are a Patreon supporter of Sorta Awesome, you're going to get some bonus in your podcast app. But we would love to hear from you what documentaries you've been watching, what you think we need to check out. So come find us on social media and tell us your documentary recommendations. Laura, remind us where we can find you all around the web. You can always go to lauratremaine.com and I link out there to my Twitter where I'm Laura Tremaine, my Instagram where I'm Laura.Tremaine, or Facebook where I'm The Hollywood Housewife. I also write a monthly email called The Secret Posts where I put in recommendations for what I'm watching and reading and wearing. If you would love to sign up for something like that, I'd love to have you. You can also do that at lauratremaine.com. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg. You can find the show on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show. We're on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. And you can find us on Facebook at any time at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffert, and Laura Tremaine. Visit us on the web at SortaAwesomeShow.com, where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at PragerMusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life Sorta amazingly awesome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.